0: All right, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17, continuing our study in the book of Acts. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Acts 17. Um, Picking up in verses 10 through 15, where we left off last week, let's go ahead and stand together. And we'll read the Word of God and then get into our study this morning. Beginning in verse 10, it says, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those of Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word was preached by Paul in Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. And then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Father, this morning we ask, Lord, that you'd meet us today, that you'd speak to our hearts. Lord, we recognize that you have set this time aside to commune with us, to speak to us, to visit with us individually and corporately as a body of believers. You desire, Lord God, to share your heart with us today, and we pray that we would have the heart of the Bereans, that we would be receptive, that we would be ready, and that, Lord God, we would be more fair-minded today. Teach us what that looks like, we ask. We pray, Lord God, that your will would be done in our lives and through our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> well, Acts chapter 17 begins with Paul and Silas. I'm going to keep my hands in my pockets for a while. Man, my hands are freezing, right? So they, uh, they began, um, Acts chapter 17 begins with Paul and Silas there in the region of Macedonia. They're traveling through the areas of Amphipolis and Apollonia, Every time I say Apollonia, I'm reminded of Purple Rain. You guys remember that movie, Purple Rain, way back in the day? I don't know why. It's like the only time I've ever heard that name outside of Scripture was during that movie, right? So but Amphipolis, Apollonia, and Thessalonica, cities that were across the Aegean Sea in modern-day Greece. Thessalonica was an important city during this period. It was Macedonia's largest port. It was the capital of its oldest second district and the residence of the provincial governor. Now, what's interesting about Thessalonica is that they had imported some non-Greek religions, not only Judaism, but also the Egyptian cults. And Rory kind of mentioned this a little bit last week, specifically the cult of Isis and the cult of Serapis. Now, Isis was an Egyptian goddess of fertility, also known as the goddess of motherhood and magic and death and healing and rebirth. She's also said to have the power over fate itself. And then there was this other cult, the cult of Serapis. This is interesting because it was an adaptation of the Egyptian sun god. In fact, it was a creation by the Greek pharaoh Ptolemy I who ordered that this man-made god would be promoted within his kingdom in order to unify Greeks and Egyptians together. Now Serapis was a sort of Frankenstein god a human amalgamation of the gods Osiris and Apis and Hades and Demeter and Dionysus. And so together, Greek and Egyptian fusion came together, and it signified power and abundance and benevolence and the resurrection. And so Thessalonica was a culturally and religiously diverse melting pot. They had Greek culture, they had Egyptian culture, and they sprinkled in a little bit of Jewish culture as well. And so all this meant that there were all kinds of these strange and exotic forms of worship that took place in this city. And it's here that Paul and his companions entered into the synagogue as it was their custom. And we read last week that Paul would reason and explain and demonstrate from the scriptures that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, in verse 2. We talked about this last week, and if you were part of our home groups, these are some of the questions that we looked at. We saw that Paul reasoned with these Jewish believers. He didn't just argue with them. He didn't lecture them. He had a dialogue with them. He would ask questions and listen to their answers, and then ask questions. More questions and listen, and then he might then give a response, and they might ask questions. there was this give and take back and forth this this idea of reasoning it means to cause someone to believe something through sustained effort, through sound reasoning that 's what Paul did, and one of the questions this last week was when you confront or you 're in contact with an unbeliever and you 're talking about faith or religion do you have a tendency to argue with them or do you dialogue with them? Do you take the time to listen and ask questions and hear their response and say things like, well, that's interesting. How did you come to that conclusion? And how has that conclusion then benefited your life? How is it working out for you? These are some of the things that Paul was doing, he was dialoguing and listening, and because of their answers, he would ask more questions, and then it says, he explained the scriptures, he opened the word of God and began to explain the scriptures to them, and then it says he demonstrated, or literally he laid the scriptures down, and then took the things that he was telling them, and he compared them together, he laid them by one another, and he says, see, this is what I'm saying, and this is what the word of God says, do you see how they're together? Do you see how they complement each other? And so he reasoned, he explained, and he demonstrated. So what was the result of the things that he was doing there at the beginning of chapter 17? Well, verse 4 tells us that some of the Jews were persuaded to believe Christ. Some of the Jews were persuaded to believe Christ. The word belief means to accept as true. It means to feel sure of the truth of something. It means to rest in, as Rory told us last week. To rest in. To stop fighting against, but to embrace. Another way to say that is to cast the weight of your soul at the foot of the throne of Christ. It means to believe. And this morning as I'm looking out, I don't know every face here. But I'll ask you this morning, do you believe Christ? Not do you believe in Christ, but do you believe him? Do you believe the word of God? Not believe in the word of God, but do you believe it? Do you believe God? Do you believe what the Bible tells us about Jesus, that he is God in human flesh? That he was born a miraculous birth to a virgin woman, that he lived a sinless life for 33 years, and then he went to the cross willingly to sacrifice his life for you and for me. Because you and I, we had a price on our head that we could never pay. The Bible tells us that every one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. At the wages of sin is what? Death. All of us are guilty before God, and there's nothing that we can do in our own merit to earn God's favor, to cancel out the the wrongs that we have done. The Bible tells us that because of that, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. Do you believe this? Not that you believe in it, but do you believe it? Paul tells us here, or sorry, Luke tells us here that many were persuaded, even a great multitude of the devout Greeks and some of the leading influential women, these strong independent thinkers, they joined Paul and Silas. J.B. Phillips says that they were convinced and they threw in their lot with Paul and Silas. I like that. They threw in their lot with them. They said, hey, we're in. You got us. We're We're good. Wherever you go, whoever you're following will follow you. And this was the beginning of the Thessalonian church. As we learned last week, this is pretty interesting. And it brings some insight into what was going on in chapter 16. Remember when Paul wanted to go on his second missionary journey? He wanted to go into Ephesus to visit some of the churches. And it says the Holy Spirit hindered him. And so he turned north and wanted to go up into Asia Minor and the Holy Spirit hindered him, and then he goes to Troas, and he begins to wait upon the Lord, and he has this vision of a Macedonian man that says, come over here and help us. So he crosses over the Aegean Sea, and he comes to a woman named Lydia. He shares the gospel with her. She gets saved. He finds himself in Philippi, and then he eventually finds himself in Thessalonica. But what was interesting is that Rory told us that, that right down the center of of the city of Thessalonica Thessalonica was was a road called the Ignatian Road or the Roman Road. Now, why is that significant? Because it's the major thoroughfare that connects everything on the east to the west, or more specifically, everything from the east to Rome. And it's significant because of this, if Christianity was firmly founded in Thessalonica, then it could spread both east and west along that road until it became the very highway for the progress of the kingdom of God. Paul planted a church there in Ephesus, He or there in Thessalonica. He wanted to go preach the gospel in Ephesus. God wanted him to go to Ephesus, but first God needed him to go to Thessalonica so that he could plant a church that would become the strategic hub of the mission of God. Now, all of this becomes clear as we're looking back on chapter 16, going, why would God hinder Paul from preaching the gospel? And now we see why. Because he needed to go to Thessalonica and plant a church there so that it would become the strategic hub for the mission of God. The gospel could could spread east and west. What was formerly known as the Roman road would become the highway to heaven as the gospel would spread from east to west. Now remember this, a few weeks ago, we talked about this passage, and Rory said that God leads us sometimes, not only through open doors, but through closed doors. God directs and leads his people into his plans and purposes with both goes and no's. In Romans chapter 8, verse 14, it says the sons of God or the daughters of God are led by the Spirit of God. And sometimes that leading doesn't make sense to us. Sometimes that leading is confusing to us. God does have a plan, and he includes us in that plan. And oftentimes those plans do not make sense. Sometimes we face conflict. Sometimes we we experience setbacks or disappointments as in chapter 15 when we see Paul and Barnabas, two incredible men of God coming together who loved one another and they have intense conflict over John Mark, so much so that they, they, they end up going completely different ways. And sometimes God uses those things in our lives, those closed doors, those knows that conflict, that setback, those disappointments to realign us with his will and his purposes. And so God leads Paul to Thessalonica and a church is born. And it was super exciting. If you've ever been a part of a church plant, I've planted two churches, one in Brazil and one here in Bend many, many years ago. If you've ever been a part of a church plant, it is super exciting. It's like having a baby. You know, when you have a baby, everything is exciting. Their first smile, oh my gosh. You're taking pictures. How many pictures are on the internet of first smiles for babies? Millions of them, but it's always so exciting. Their first word, the first time they stand, the first time they walk, their very first solid food that they eat is so exciting. The first solid poo they make is super exciting, right? It's just like that with a church. It's so exciting. God is moving. God was preaching, or sorry, the gospel was being preached, and people were being saved. But there was opposition. And there always will be, when God is moving in the hearts of men, Satan will do everything he possibly can to distract them, to confuse truth, to frustrate the work of God, to distract people from God's work. Case in point, verse 5. Here we see unbelieving Jews. I just love that when I said verse 5, about three quarters of the room dropped their head to look at the scriptures. I love that. In verse 5, we read that unbelieving Jews sought to disrupt and stop what God was doing by fueling uproar in the city. Man, I'm so cold. My nose is running. My hands are freezing. Woo! Woo! Ah! So verse 5 says this. But the Jews who were not persuaded became envious and took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathered a mob and set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. It says that these guys were envious. They were jealous of what was going on. They're looking around. They're hearing the commotion. They're hearing the excitement in people's voices. Hey, do you know? The Messiah we've been waiting for, he's come and his name is Jesus. Wait, what is, what, what? And their lives are being transformed. They're full of joy. They're full of excitement. They're full of life for the first time. It's no longer about religion. It's about a relationship and they're super excited. And it says that they got jealous. They were envious of what was taking place. So what they do? Instead of joining them, they stirred up a mob to try and thwart and distract and confuse what God was doing. At the very least, the disciples were painted as dissenters. At the very worst, as insurrectionists. William Barclay says this, The Jews stooped to the lowest methods to hinder Paul. First, they stirred up the rabble. I love that word, rabble. They stirred up the rabble. It just means the the group, the, the mob, right? They stirred them up. Um, Then, when they had dragged Jason and his friends before the magistrates, they charged the Christian missionaries with preaching political insurrection. They knew their charge was a lie, and yet it was couched in very suggestive terms. These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. The unrest apparently was so bad that the disciples decided to immediately whisk Paul and Silas away under cover of night that, for fear that they might either be injured or worse, put to death. And verse 10 tells us that they brought them to the city of Berea. Do you have that map of the city of Berea there? So you can see up here in the upper left you see where it says Macedonia, that's modern-day Greece in that area. To the right, the orange, where it says Troas, and Bithynia in Asia, that's modern-day Turkey. They're crossing over the Aegean Sea. This is actually a map of the third missionary journey. I couldn't find a really good map of the second missionary journey. But this is the third. Nonetheless, it actually mentions the names. There's Philippi. There's Thessalonica. And then Berea is on the far left right there. They send them to the city of Berea. Verse 10 says this, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Now, Berea was a significant city. Interesting, Paul's journey has always been on the Roman road until this point. Now they're off that, this road. In other words, it's almost like the disciples looked at what was happening and They said, Hey, we've got to get you out of Dodge. Okay? Not only do we have to get you out of Dodge, we've got to get you off-grid. And so they took them off the main road to the city of Berea. It was a significant city. At one time, it was the most prominent city in the area, uh, being that it was the capital of one of the four divisions of the region of Macedonia from 167 to 148 BC. It was a sizable city uh, with a large population in Paul's time. And it was situated about 50 miles south or southwest of Thessalonica on the eastern slopes of Mount, Mount, Mount Vermian, on the Olympic um, mountain range. And we're told in verse 10 that it was Paul and Silas that were eventually taken out of Thessalonica under cover of darkness. They traveled 50 miles or literally three days to get to this place. And when they arrived, what did they do? What would you do in a situation like this? What would you do? Would you hide out? Would you disguise yourself in the hopes of laying low until everything kind of cools down? That's not what these guys did. Look at verse 10. What what did they do? They boldly go into the synagogues, as was their custom, and they preach the risen Christ. Look at verse 10 again. Then their brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. And so arriving in the town... The witness began, as it always did, in the synagogues. And the Jews of Berea, however, were of a different breed than they had encountered previously. Luke describes them as being fair-minded. Some of your Bibles might uh, say more noble than the Thessalonians in verse 11. Luke uses a Greek word here that originally meant to be high-born or to be high in rank. This word would eventually become um, understood to mean to be open, to be tolerant, to be generous. And nowhere is this more evident than in the manner in which these individuals received Paul's teaching. I love the four words of this text. The title of our message is Four Words for Today, right? Four Words for Today. And I love the four words of this text, Searching the Scriptures Daily, Searching the scriptures daily. And this illustrates the eagerness. It illustrates the willingness of the men and women of the Berean synagogue to dialogue about Jesus, the one who Paul suggested was the promised Messiah. And notice it says that they listened gladly, or they received the word with readiness. They received the word with readiness. In other words, they were open to it. But, but, they didn't blindly receive it, and they didn't blindly reject what Paul was saying. Notice, they match his teaching with the Old Testament Scriptures. Look at verse 11 again. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily. Daily. The word searched or examined is use of judicial investigations like when Herod was examining Jesus in the Gospels or when the Sanhedrin examined Peter in John in Acts chapter 4, verse 9 or when Felix examined Paul in Acts 24, verse 8. It implies integrity. It implies an absence of bias. That's huge. That's how open they were. They listened to what he had to say with open minds, with unbiased minds. Listen to what F.F. F. Bruce says, with admirable freedom from prejudice, they brought the missionaries' claims to the touchstone of the holy writ. I love that. Whatever Paul was saying, they said, huh, interesting. I think I like this, but I want to make sure this is true. So what did they do? Did they say, hey, Billy, what do you think? Do you think he's right? Billy says, oh yeah, I think he's right. He must be right. No, they took it to the touchstone of the Holy Writ, the Word of God, the good book. They brought it out. They dusted it off. They opened the pages. They searched the scriptures. I love how F.F. How Bruce uses the word touchstone. The word touchstone means benchmark or standard or yardstick. And so whatever Paul was saying, they measured it against the yardstick of God's word, the benchmark of the Holy Writ. And they did it daily. John Polhill in his commentary, the New American Commentary, says this, they did not accept his word uncritically, but did their own examination of the scriptures to see if they really did point to the death and resurrection of the Messiah as Paul claimed. I like that. They did their own examination. We love the fact that at Calvary Chapel, we're a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter, book-by-book church, correct? That's our philosophy. It's called expository teaching. That's what we love. We like it. But the question is, are we expository listeners? Are we expository listeners? Are we listening critically and then saying, huh, interesting, I wonder what the word of God says about that. Or does the word of God really teach that? And so again, putting up that, that quote from John Polhill again, he says, they did not accept his word uncritically, but did their own examination of the scriptures to see if they really did point to the death and resurrection of the Messiah. They said, hey, listen, no, I'm not, you know, I, I'm a Christian, but man, I'm going to wait and allow the pastor to do all the work for me. No. They listened and they said, interesting things, interesting insight, challenging things. Hmm, I'm going to compare that to the word of God and see if it really is what he says it is. And it goes on, Pohill goes on and says, this was no cursory investigation either. No weekly Sabbath service as at Thessalonica. They met daily to search the scriptures. John Stott also keys on, he's in on the frequency and the tenacity of their examination. He says, meeting Paul for a daily dialogue, and not just on a weekly one on the Sabbath to see if what Paul said was true, together with their industry and unprejudiced openness in studying the scriptures, they combined receptivity with critical questioning. Receptivity with critical questioning. When we look at the Berean Church, this wasn't a Sunday-only faith. This was a faith that was informed and defined and directed by the Scriptures. These were people of the book. People of the book. And we've been talking about a great deal over these last few weeks about Paul's courage to preach the Gospel, to reason, to explain, to demonstrate from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And we've been challenged over this last week, To ask ourselves, are we open to be used by God to do the same thing? To be able to share the gospel this way? To reason and explain and demonstrate from the scriptures, not from what so-and-so says or pastor so-and-so told me or I heard so-and-so on the radio saying this. But what does the Bible say? We've been challenged this week and here's the thing. We cannot give what we ourselves do not possess. We have to know the scriptures in order to do that. We have to daily be in the word of God to get so that the word of God gets into us. Readiness, as we read about these these individuals here, they were ready to receive, they received the word of God with readiness. Readiness to be able to share the truth, to be able to give defense of our faith in season and out of season. It's a perishable skill. You guys have always heard the phrase, right? If you don't use it, you what? You lose it. And it's true when it comes to being able to, to study the scriptures, to explain the gospel, to be able to defend our faith. If we don't use it, we lose it. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. He says, study to show thyself approved, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing the word of truth. He tells young Timothy, study the word of God. Be a student. That's what it means to be a disciple. It means to be a student. Study. And so the question this morning is this, are you fair-minded? Are you open to the teaching of the word of God? Is your heart receptive to the teaching of scriptures? And listen, listen, Do you search the scriptures daily to know truth? D.A. Carson wrote this. He says that we are dealing with God's thoughts. And I know that we know that. That's why we're here. We're Christians, right? Most of us are Christians in this room, and, and we carry this thing around, and we believe it's the word of God. We know it intellectually. Theologically, we say, yes, yes, right? And theoretically, we'll say, yes, it's the word of God. But do we recognize that this really is God's word breathed out? to us. This is God's word. I remember years ago, I was ministering to a guy that was a Muslim in Brazil, and he would come around for weeks on end, and I would open the scripture, and I'd share with him that Jesus isn't just a prophet, he is God. And then one day as we were talking, I said, let's pray, and I put my Bible on the ground. We were sitting down, I put my Bible on the ground, and he goes, how dare you do that? I go, what do you mean? He goes, put God's word in the dirt. And at first I'm like, oh, come on, dude, that's legalistic. And I thought, wait a minute. He has a respect for the word of God that somehow I have lost. We put our coffee cups on it. (laughs) We put it underneath other books. This is God's word. It wasn't designed to be closed and shelved. It was designed to be open and read and feasted upon on a daily basis. Amen? D.A. Carson says we're dealing with God's thoughts in the pages of this book. We're obligated then to take the greatest pains to understand them truly and to explain them clearly. I almost used an image. So at the very beginning when I says, you know, four by four, four words for today. I almost use an image of a person opening up the Bible and going, and all this dust blowing off of it, right? Because for many of us, that's kind of what it's like, isn't it? I can't tell you how many times we've found Bibles that have been here, that have been here for months, and people don't even know they're missing. And we'll call them and go, hey, we found your Bible. Oh, gosh, I didn't even know. I didn't even know it was gone. So he tells us here that we're dealing with the thoughts of God, and we're obligated then to take the greatest pains to understand them truly and explain them clearly. And Thessalonica Paul reasoned, Paul explained, he proved, he proclaimed, he persuaded. And in Berea, the Jews eagerly received the message and diligently examined the scriptures. They searched the scriptures daily to do what? To find out, to discover the mind and heart of God. It is fair to say that these believers had two convictions or two imperatives. Number one, they believed they could understand it. They believed they could understand it. How many of us think that we can't understand the Old Testament? We'll say things like, I love the New Testament. The Old Testament, man, it's hard to understand. (laughs) It's hard to get. Or don't even get me started on the book of Revelation or some of the things in, in Ezekiel or Isaiah, right? Crazy stuff. But here's the reality. Only 8% of prophecy that deals with the church age, the coming of the Messiah, or the, the life to come, only 8% deals with that of the Bible. Prophetically. Only 8%. That means that 92% we should be able to get. Right? If my math is correct. we should be able to read and understand. These guys believed they could search the scriptures and understand the heart and mind of God. And secondly, they believed they could find out the truth from the Bible. From God's word. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing into the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This is living and powerful. Paul would say this in Romans chapter one, verse 16, for the gospel of God is powerful, powerful enough to save. And he said, "I'm I'm not ashamed of it. I'm gonna proclaim it. I'm gonna carry it not just in my hands, but in my heart. It is the gospel of God unto salvation. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul writing to Timothy says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And Psalm 119.105 says, the word of God is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. I can honestly tell you this. I've been walking with the Lord now, come December, 30 years, this December. I've been in full-time ministry for 27, 28 years. And I can tell you this, the older I get, the longer I walk with the Lord, I've discovered the wisdom of these words, searching the scriptures daily. I've understood, I'm beginning to understand the wisdom of these words, that I need to be an individual who constantly is testing what I'm taught. Testing what I'm listening to, regardless of where it's coming from. If it's coming from the celebrities in the media, teachers in the classroom, or even from the pulpit. Testing the things I'm hearing against the word of God. Amen? What's interesting is that neither Paul nor the Bereans use scripture in a superficial, in an unintelligent, or in a proof-texting way. What do I mean by proof texting? It means I'm not coming to the word of God with a preconceived idea, an opinion, and then trying to find scriptures to prop that opinion up. Trying to find scriptures then to prove that what I think is correct. No, I'm allowing the word of God to inform, define, and direct how I think, how I see, how I navigate life, how I process On the contrary, Paul reasoned out of the scriptures and the Brians examined them to see if his arguments were sound. I love this quote by John Stott. He says this, it was inevitable and absolutely logical that in Jewish evangelism, the scriptures should be both the textbook or the source and the court of appeals, the standard. The Bible is to be our textbook, our source of knowledge and truth. And it's also to be our, our standard of truth, right? Our standard, the, the yardstick of what we are to believe. God's inspired scriptures are the final authority on all matters. They have the power to divide the truth and to direct the heart back to truth. W.A. Criswell says, whether we continue to live or ultimately die lies in our dedication To the infallible word. It lies in our dedication to the infallible word. Friends, we need to daily intake the truth of God's word into our hearts. Why? Because the human heart is so deceitful. The human heart is so prone to wander. The human heart is so easily swayed. How do I know that, Chris? How do you know my heart? Because I know my heart. I know my heart. And it's easily led away by propaganda and the philosophies of this world. Therefore, I must, needs, be in the word of God daily. Romans 12.2 says this, Be no longer conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why does he tell us to be no longer conformed? Because we are conforming to the world. We are conforming to the world. We have to fight against not conforming to the world. How do we do that? By being transformed through the renewing of your mind. How do we do that? By reading the word of God and allowing the Holy Spirit to take the truths of it and to press them into our heart and transform how we feel, how we think, and how we respond. Amen? And in the time when we're being fed untruth by the truckload, from the media, in the classroom, and even from the pulpit. We need to be in the scriptures daily. In Joshua chapter one, verses eight and nine, God tells Joshua, he says, hey, don't be afraid. Be of good courage. Why? It, says, it tells him that four or five times in chapter one. Why? He was freaking out. <laughs> he was looking what was going on around him, going, oh, like this is way too big for me. I don't know how I'm gonna handle this. And, and God's like, shh. be still, be of good courage. And then he tells him this, meditate on the word of God day and night for then you will prosper and then you will have good success. Charles Spurgeon in a sermon entitled The Noble Bereans encourages the church to mimic the Bereans in a voracious study and reading of the scriptures. He says, Bible searchers are the peers of heaven. Bible searchers are the peers of heaven. Heaven, noble in their aims, noble in their spirit, noble in their conduct, noble in thought and principle. God demands that you search the scriptures. What does coming to the scriptures daily do for us? Well, it does this. It keeps us in a place of submission to his ways. It anchors us on the path of righteousness. It keeps us grounded in truth but we're not tossed by every new wind of doctrine that blows in, that blows around us, that comes in and out of the church, that circulates throughout society, that we hear on Facebook or social media or whatever it may be, on the news. Man, I can't stand watching the news anymore. I used to love watching the news because it was fair and unbiased. Now, gosh, you watch it like, what is truth? No one even knows. And now they're reporting things they've done no research on. Even when they find out later that they were wrong, they don't even apologize for it, right? How can we find truth? The word of God. It keeps us anchored. Because if we don't do that, if we don't do that, when we're not examining the the, the scriptures daily, we'll discover that our feelings and that our own opinions become truth. And we begin to filter everything through how it makes me feel or my opinion of it. And then we become guided by our own misguided truth. That's exactly what happened here to the Jews. Remember it said at the beginning in verse 5 that some of the Jews, they went into the synagogue, they preached the gospel. Some of the Jews, apparently a small percentage, believed. But the majority of the Jews, we read about in verse 12, they come down all the way 50 miles. This is how... This is how their hearts were directed. They travel 50 miles, three days, to agitate and stir up opposition in Berea. They're driven by erroneous opinions and feelings, and they'll do anything to defend them. And that can happen to all of us very, very easily. And so today, may I encourage you to do this. May I encourage you to assess where your feelings and opinions have been driven have been driving your behavior. To assess where your opinions and feelings are driving your behavior. Your attitude in the home, to, toward your husband, toward your wife, towards your kids, towards your neighbors. Are you self medicating? Alcohol, drugs, pornography. Assess where your feelings or opinions have been driving your behavior. Do this. Let God lead you by his truth. This is way ahead. This is actually at the very end. So let's pull that back. So we're going to assess where your feelings and opinions have been driving your behavior. Submit those feelings to God, right? Submit those feelings and opinions to God, but don't stop there. We're called to search the scriptures for how to feel, how to respond to the issues that have been directing our feelings and our opinions, and to allow the Holy Writ, to allow the Word of God to transform the way that you think and respond so that you may know and be able to prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Someone once said this, the truest way to know God truly is to pick up and read the scriptures daily. The truest way to know God truly is to pick up and read the scriptures daily. Charles Spurgeon was so convinced of this, so convinced of this. It was the very reason why he died a theological outcast. Because he was eventually forced to leave his association. He was forced to stand alone as a voice of truth. And he says this, Sinner, dost thou desire salvation? Salvation tis by faith and that comes by god's word christian wouldst thou increase thy faith search the scriptures daily and pull out your dusty bibles the record of the holy scriptures shines favorably on The Bereans, because they were a group of men and women who were fair-minded. They were more noble. They received the word of God with all readiness. They were people of the book. They measured everything that they heard, everything that they saw, and everything they experienced against the word of God. I'm going to ask the worship team to start making their way up here. As we close here this morning, I want to give you three questions that you can use this week to help process what we've been hearing here today. You can apply the things the Holy Spirit has presented to us today. And these are the three things up here. Yep. Ask this, do this, and pray this. Ask this, what feelings or opinions have been driving your behavior? Do this, let God lead you by his truth, by spending five minutes searching the scriptures for a godly response, and pray this. God, reveal to me how to think, feel, and respond. Ask, do, and pray. The attitude of the Bereans toward the word of God and the teachings of the day is definitely one that we as Christians, we need to try and emulate as we seek to navigate through this world that constantly and continually shoves their form of truth into our faces and into the faces of those whom God has entrusted to us. We need to be a people who are continually daily examining the scriptures, both as our textbook and as our court of appeals. Amen? Let's be a people that bring out the book. Amen? Father, this morning we come before you. We thank you for the example of the Bereans, these fair-minded, open-hearted men and women Lord who are willing to listen willing to consider that did not quickly reject or accept but Lord with their critical questioning they brought the things that they were hearing to the measuring stick of the word of God and they said what does God's word say about this does this line up if it didn't, they were going to reject it. But because it did, they embraced it. And God began to do a work in and through them. And many individuals, it says, many Jews, many Greeks, both women and men, came to faith in Jesus Christ because of it. Lord, we know that you are doing a work in our lives. And we know, Lord God, that you're not done. We pray, Lord God, that you would stir our hearts to become students of your word, that we would become or get in the habit of seeing life and sifting through the things that we hear and see through the filter of your word. We would hold true to the things that we find in it and cast off everything else that is contrary to it. pray today, Lord God, that you would encourage us and build us up, each man, each woman, young or old, in their faith. As we give ourselves to your word, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I just want to encourage you this week to, if you're not in the habit of getting the word every day, I want to encourage you this week to start a new habit. To break some new ground even if it's for a short period of time, even if it's five minutes, if it's just reading a few passages, get in the habit of getting in the words, the word of God can get into you and transform your life and transform how you think, how you respond to all the different stimuli that are around us every single day. I want to encourage you also to, ladies, if you have not signed up for the women's retreat, please do so. Those of you who are interested in the purity um, class that Daryl is, is leading, I would encourage you to connect with him. You have his phone number where he's right up here in front as well. If you need prayer this morning, please don't leave here without getting prayer from myself or from Rory or one of the elders. I want to make sure that you're covered in prayer this morning. We also want to invite you to stay and stick around for Fireside Fellowship after this. God bless you. Have a great day.